Rochelle Prosser <laughs> is the founder and president of Orchid Healthcare Solutions. Rochelle, welcome to CC Life Science. Nice to meet you, Chris. It's a definite pleasure to finally um, be on your podcast with you. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So uh, I have to shout out to Mark Gannett, who I think connected us or, you know, made us aware of each other, at least. Um, he and Lamar, who I think Lamar connected me to Mark, mm-hmm. have been, I, I say I'm going to give them associate producer credits because they've <laughs> essentially given me guests for the last half of this year. Uh, that is- <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself and Orchid Healthcare Solutions, just so we have a context for this whole conversation. Sure. I'm a neurotrauma critical care nurse of 30 years. And I, as a healthcare professional, I always ended up taking care of the patient that had something going on with them traumatically, but then they had cancer on top of that. That was an underlying condition that put their recovery in jeopardy. And 30 years is a long time. The beginnings and the onsets of early oncology in the 90s and early 2000s, they really didn't think of, uh, yeah, of acute oncology care in the same way and manner as they do now. And so um, it was, well, if they make it through the night, then we'll do something. And I found out I had to do something. I had to step in the, the gap. And so I would take those patients on. They're more complex, they're more challenging. But if you can save the life, in that acute phase, you can help them through the chronicness of the oncology phase. And so that's what I ended up doing. I love it. Um, then cancer decided to visit me on my doorstep with my husband, who was a two-time cancer survivor. And then my four-year-old, th- my third child, who was four at the time, she had this arbitrary, completely rare brain cancer and it took nine years to figure it out for, for her to find survival. And that's a long time. Most people can't deal with that. Um, marriages are lost. Finances are ruined. Um, but we remained intact as a family unit, as a marriage, as in survivorship. But as you know, cancer really has no name. It doesn't matter who your political party is, how much money you have, or little money that you have. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter who you love. It is an equal opportunity offender. And I felt the need to intercede in that space intentionally with what I knew and how to navigate. So this is why I started Orchid Healthcare Solutions. I created a cancer treatment library that houses all cancer treatments from soup to nuts, everything that's out there that is scientifically driven in one place. One of the biggest pain points that uh, being on the provider side, but also on the recipient and caregiver side that I found was there wasn't a place that had a unified place to go. It was really difficult to navigate, to get information, just to find out that knowledge. And I said, if there was one way that I could share my knowledge was to consolidate that, remove the silos so that you have effective and appropriate information sharing. And that will help vulnerable populations. That will increase knowledge and awareness and increase participation in clinical trials. Wow. Okay. So we're going to talk about all of that. I'm going to go way back to the beginning. So a (laughs) neurotrauma, I'm assuming, for example, a head injury or right? And then someone finds out they have cancer while they're dealing with that. Correct. It's a horrific and horrendous situation to find out. And if you don't manage it appropriately, if you don't take certain steps to move the needle towards survivorship, you're not going to survive in that acute phase. Because how our bodies genetically react to certain drugs means the difference between survival and, you know, making preparations in the way that you don't want to. Yeah. Okay. So then the next thing is, I mean, obviously you said cancer on your doorstep. No one, I mean, no one wants to experience it in their family, let alone a 
four-year-old yes. and, and a nine-year journey. But I want to ask, since you brought up the whole marriage thing, which is totally understandable mm -hmm. how that happens, did your husband's experience, having gone through it, do you think that made your outcome of staying together as a family easier? Because... <laughs> no. If that's not too okay. No. The honest answer is no. I mean, the statistics is real. 80 to 90% of families, marriages that go in to cancer and cancer treatment, they fail. They fail for a multitude of things. Isolation, financial resources, access and proximity and interruption in your relationship. And so it you have to want it. Just in any marriage, you gotta want it to work on it. You want to come together, but if you are on different paths to what your cancer treatment and goal looks like between you, the recipient, and you, the, the spouse, you're on a path to destruction. So, I mean, it, it was a lot for us. Our journey included his two times, but also our four-year-old. So you're looking at decades of dealing yeah. with him. And that is hard, and you have to want it. You, you go in with those um, of the saying of um, through thickness and in health until death do you part. And do you mean that? What does that look like? And when it's actually put in front of you, you have a whole different perspective. Some people can hang, most people have to go. And fortunately, we, we had our struggles. It was hard, but we've managed to stay together. And it's been tw 24 miraculous years, happy most. Um, we just choose to find joy and we choose each other and we choose to find love. Well, thank you for sharing that. That I thought maybe the experience would change the perspective, but also I completely understand that the stress of three consecutive cancer diagnoses yeah. would, I mean, make anybody just want to just say, just peace out. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, you do your thing, I'll do mine, but yeah, this mm -hmm. is another, I mean, mm -hmm. there's enough other stuff going on in your world. But. Yeah, life is hard, but it doesn't have to be harder. Yeah, you, choose, you choose how you handle a situation. That That is the biggest thing that I, is a takeaway for me. Life is about choices. You're going to have a lot of situational awareness and situations that come at you. How you handle that situation as you're going through it makes all the difference on the outcome. Definitely. Yeah. So tell us about your daughter and that journey in particular, because I think that it sounds like that's what really got you on the path to Orchid Healthcare, right? Yes. You know, when you're dealing with adults, um, everyone has their own personal opinion. And of course, as an adult, you can make your choices and stand firm. But when you're dealing with a child at the dawn of their life, not, not at the sunset or anywhere in between, we're talking at the very beginning. They haven't even experienced life yet. They don't even know what life looks like. And you have a, you receive devastating news at that point, you're just desperate. You're desperate to do anything to save their life, preserve their life, make their life as beautiful and meaningful and impactful as you can while you receive the gift of them. And that's the present. And so for me, it was all about quality of life. There wasn't a treatment option. There wasn't a cure. There wasn't a magic bullet for her. And we very quickly found that conventional treatment was actually the experimental treatment. And when that didn't work, we were in the realm of full experimentation under humanitarian reasons to preserve the life. They're terminal anyways. Let's see if this sticks. And that's a hard place that a lot of parents find themselves in walking in cancer. Because when conventional treatment doesn't work and your facility is out of options, what do you do? You have to make choices that go against 
um, society norms. But walk a mile in my shoes and you will definitely have corns. Okay. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't judge. Every parent knows and every child that is experiencing cancer understands fully what that means and what they can endure. And so you make those hard choices. Do you fight? Or do you just enjoy your child for the time frame that you have? And for me, I couldn't, I couldn't, that giving up was not an option. I needed to know everything that I could find. And of course, going on Google was traumatic as it was because you get some scientific stuff, but you get a whole bunch of snake, (laughs) snake oil. And that wasn't okay for me. Um, I needed to have those strategic conversations being in the healthcare world and understanding the brain, I needed to have that strategic partner in cancer where you're understood, your thoughts are valued, and you're not seen as a threat to the ego. And most of the time I got that, there were some times that I didn't. And that was even harder because then that pushed me further to say, oh yeah, I'm going to show you. Because my child was put into hospice five times during that nine years. And I don't know about you, I'm not ready to make final preparations for anybody's child, let alone my own. That it just goes against what I value and believe. And so I had to find a way to politely and effectively navigate and communicate so that I could get to that next cure to that next option. For me, 50% chance of working for two years until the next treatment was a better option than 10% chance on a conventional treatment. And people, when you're put into that decision-making, if you don't have all the knowledge out there to know what those options are, you literally are limited to the toolbox that you're given. And sometimes it's only a screwdriver. And that's not fair. So this is what pushed me to bring proximity of knowledge and education and access to the average person with layman's understanding of healthcare, because knowledge is power and that ends up being overall survivorship if you have that available to you. So it sounds like when you talk about the ego thing, we don't need to get into all of that, but it, here's what I, here's what came to my mind. You have, you know, when your daughter is in hospice five times and at the wow. same time, you must be pushing on some doctor or somebody to say, can we try this? Right. So, unfortunately with children, you're left to your own devices. If you, you in oncology, you are diagnosed with cancer. You don't even get the choice of who your provider, who your healthcare doctor is going to be. It's a referral from your primary care physician. You, that's the door that opens up. Without the referral from the oncologist that is now your specialist, there's certain cancer hospitals you can't go to. You need that passkey mm-hmm. of a referral, which why? <laughs> why? If that is the care that you need and that's where it is and this is what you have, you should be allowed to enter those spaces. It's just like now we have the hospital for um, surgical services or we have uh, OBGYN clinics. If you have that specialty need, you should just be able to go where the specialists are. And there is a difference between a cancer center that does cancer 24-7, 365 days a year, and your local community hospital. What's available to you in clinical trials, what's available to you in experimental um, treatments are not available in your local community centers and hospitals. So you need to have that specialized care and proximity to um, researchers, to doctors who do this every day. You don't get that choice. Uh, you don't even know how often your doctor has seen it. Honestly, your, pr- your primary care physician has no idea who to send you to. 
And so they rely on referrals from friends or that maybe their um, resident that they went to school with or played golf with and say, oh, he might know. You're sent to that person who then sends you to a colleague within their group. So you never know what their statistical outcomes of success are. Oncology is uniquely positioned that way. It is thoroughly unfair. And so I am a disruptor to change that. Yeah, no, that's good. And I want to talk more about that. Where I was going with my previous question is the pushback you might get from a doctor or anyone who says, you've already put your kid in hospice. Mm-hmm. Why, are, why are we still having this conversation? Because you're wrong. That's my answer. Right, right. Okay. Because you're wrong. I right. don't agree with you. Let's bring in the team. I'm not going to be an opinion of one. Let's bring in all the team to sit here at the table and have a discussion. That is hard for some physicians and some people in the healthcare profession to acknowledge. Their word is their bond and their decision is final. And when you're talking about a life or the lack of extending someone's life, um, I have a really strong (laughs) opinion about that. And quite frankly, until some, until that heart stops beating, you don't get the right to make that decision for my child, period. Yeah. So obviously you learned a lot. I mean, you've been, it's hard to imagine that there was any stone left unturned (laughs) on your journey. So Um, how have you taken what you learned on that (laughs) to make this uh, easier for others? So being obstinate for your child is not necessarily the best way to go. (laughs) Sometimes um, honey works better than than lemons. Um, Having the gumption and the fortitude to stand your ground and say, I understand your opinion, and it matters for the community, but I would like to hear what the other options are. And know that the other options that may be out there are not options available to you. Like that's, that's the hardest part as the recipient of care, that There's technology, there's treatments, it's so exhaustive, but it might not be right for you. And sometimes we hitch our wagon on the semblance of hope that this might work, especially when in desperation. But there's a reason why God gave us two ears and one mouth, because we need to listen. And our healthcare doctors and nurses that are in there are not going to give you information to hurt you. We are inherently here to help. We are inherently here to find cures. We are inherently here to do good. And so the takeaway on this part of this segment is it's not, it's personal to you, that person going through the journey, but it's not personal to the physician or the nurse because they want to do good. So if they say no, hear that, because that might actually do more harm if you insist. So that is the, that's what I have learned. So listen with an open mind, have an open heart. And if it is no, there might be something else out there that is better suited So when conventional treatment didn't work for us, we had to go in experimental and then look at the DNA structure of my daughter's tumor, which was a mosaic tumor. And so it, conventional treatment just was never going to work. But if you bring in the scientific evidence and let science catch up to where you are, then you can move forward collaboratively together. So maybe it's managing of the symptoms of the treatment that you're on rather than looking for the curative process, thinking of it in terms of I'm living with a chronic illness 
So we're going to live in the present instead of trying to think, okay, the hope tomorrow is I'm going to be cured. That might never happen. And then you miss the beauty of living in the presence and having a full, well-balanced life for a very long time. That's good advice. Um, One, I mean, just backing up, you know, I was thinking that we were going to go in a little bit different direction. Obviously, you've been a strong advocate for your child. Mm -hmm. But then what Mm -hmm. you just said is when people say no, doesn't mean no, never. But you sound like they say no, there's a reason. Like this isn't the right treatment given what we know about your cancer and specifically Mm -hmm. your tumor. Right. Exactly. And it's not personal. They're trying to save your life. That is the key takeaway because it's easy to stay in the land of you're not helping and you're not helpful. And then that actually interrupts your care. What you don't want is to interrupt your care. What you want is to have a collaborative conversation about the treatments and remedies out there so that you're not given snake oil and snake treatment. Um, I remember uh, looking at the end of Steve Jobs' life, and he, in desperation to save himself from GI cancer, actually went to some Indian village um, way out there to see some shaman. And as he's walking through the, the, the line and got up, he realized, oh, it's a, it's a sleight of hand trick. It really wasn't real. And so I, I think as we look at the new innovative treatments, people have the intention of wanting to help so much that they believe in something to the point that they forget that there needs to be medical science added to that as a layer to ensure that, okay, this is tested in other areas. And if you have these sets of criteria or genes, it will work for you. And it will work for you without causing harm. Because at the end of the day, we want to have a quality of life as long as we can extend the life. Because what's the point of extending the life if the cure is worse than the disease? Right. And it sounds like extending the life in your case bought time for for success. Exactly. Exactly. For medical science to catch up to her. Yes. Can you give us for, um, you know, a high level or a, whatever level you want, some knowledge about what you found out about the genome of your daughter's tumor that made the difference? I'm just curious because, I, I mean, I know Ooh. personalized medicine is awesome, but I never hear specific cases like it was this yes. and we did yeah. that. So here's what I know she doesn't have. Um, we hear all of these things about the BRAC gene and the breast cancer gene and how it translates into um, uh, prostate cancer and lung cancer. And there's these MEC and, and all of these inhibitors that are coming through. She had none of that. <laughs> she has none of that. And so in having this mosaic tumor, she had a bit of um, glioblastoma she had a bit of DIPG. She had a bit of um, cardiovascular, which is looking at how um, the vascular system that carries the blood goes. She had part of that as part of her cancer, as well as she had um, uh, neurons that worked to protect your vision. All of those were interrupted as well. So even the cells and the um, neurons, and these are astrocytes, that are predominantly there to clean the brain and remove debris when cancer occurs or we are repairing ourselves, that also was where her cancer was. It was even through her brainstem. So there was really no magic bullet or any one single drug that was going to work for her in that case. We literally had to wait till medical science caught up to her and looking at the level at which we can intercede in the tumor genesis to stop that process or at least slow it down to give her give her more time. So that's really high level. Yeah, that's fair enough. And and so medical advances now are looking at these other ancillary genes lower down and higher up in the chain and making a lot of great medical advances. But 
But what we are also learning is that it's going to take a combination of these drugs together to really move the needle forward. And so we need to look at the side effects. Why is the genome process so important? We are all part of the human genome. Just because our skin is extra melanated doesn't make us less part of the human genome experience. What the difference is, is how our DNA, how our genes express ourselves under stress, under certain climate conditions, and under certain conditions of drugs. Just like with the hypertensive drugs, if you give a certain class of drugs to African-Americans, you will kill their kidney function and ultimately kill them. The same thing is happening with oncology drugs. The problem is we're not, we're not, um, we're not experimenting or exposing them to enough of us within the human genome to know what those side effects are. Because if we know how it is expressed, we can then mitigate those circumstances where it's unpleasant and prepare and strategize that, okay, if you're part of that community, it's going to affect you more fastly or more expediently than another sector. So we're going to put these things in place. Often planning, my father always says, proper preparation prevents poor performance. It is the same thing with oncology. If you know what's going to happen or transpire, you can make those preparations. And so I honestly feel um, we're not having enough innovation in this area because we're not understanding how these drugs are expressed between all of us. And if we're not active participants, all of us, we cannot get there together. And then we're shelving or canceling drugs that actually could cure if we knew the full range of the of the action. Yeah. This has come up a few times on this podcast. Recently, when I talked to Antonio Tito, we talked about, you know, diversity in trials and why it's important and, you know, how... Um, in a couple areas where, all right, this drug works on this population, but many of the drugs that are approved, in the general public, you would think, oh, that drug's approved, it works to cure cancer. Well, it works in this group, but not that group. And the other drug works here and not there. Mm -hmm. For me, I mean, you're going to tell me why, you know, more diversity is <laughs> important in in representation in clinical trials, for me, as a, just as a scientist, it's just more knowledge, right? It's, Correct. It's, it's more data. We're going to learn things that benefit everyone. Correct. By how something works in, an, in another Correct. population, right? It does, it's it's exactly. not just for that population, you're uncovering biology every Correct. time. Every single time in every sector of our society. And that is the only way to move us forward. We all must come together because where it works or is expressed in one, it doesn't work, but we need to find out why. And when you find out why, it is that nuance of why that then can put protection and then advancement in, in, in improvement in care overall for all of us. So even though it works for one sector, you must try it on all of us because it's all of us or none of us. Right. Honestly. It, just, it just generates it, a new hypothesis, right? I mean, you say this works or it doesn't work in, it works in one group and not the other. Why? Right. Now you have another hypothesis. What is it doing? Exactly. You know, what's different about expression here or... Yeah metabolism there. Mm -hmm. COVID has taught us that gene expression and how drugs work within our genes is the epitome of the outcome of how we, su we survive. When we look at the biggest predictor of outcome, it was inflammation. And inflammation actually is a problem. It is a problem through all of our, our genome. doesn't matter how much melanation you have in our skin. In, in America, we have a problem with inflammation. And so it leads to obesity. It leads to high blood pressure. It leads to kidney disease. It leads to excessive stress. It leads to a lot of things. 
but certain sectors of us are more prone to it based on our gene expression. So let me, as you were saying, the, the historical context. So depending historically on where we lived regionally, inflammation actually saves lives. So if you lived in desert climates where water was not prevalent way back when, your body used inflammation to store water. Move it forward to today, the gene expression is still there, but we live in America where water is very prevalent, where food is very prevalent, substance is very prevalent. Our body is still going to have inflammation, but it's going to lead to things that are destructive to the body rather than beneficial. So if you give a drug that causes inflammation, you ultimately end up causing acute care problems. And we need to manage those and mitigate those. And we won't know that unless we test those drugs through all the population. The issue historically, there's a historical issue as to why African-Americans are not in this space. We've been taking advantage of all of these things, but I will say this knowing that I did not participate and refuse to allow certain facilities when they came and asked me, can we uh, put your daughter or your husband's inf tumor information into our database? And it is two things. If the person is younger than me and, and cannot answer an historically accurate account of what has happened to African-Americans in the use of their cancer cells, I'm not going to give you permission to control uh, and add to that database because I don't know how you're going to use it. I don't know how you're going to protect it because that is unique to us. We have right over that ownership. The other thing is, if you cannot respect my concerns on how we have been treated historically, but most importantly, if you don't look like me, you ain't getting it. I don't care how much, how much you try. And so representation matters. So this is why I'm on your podcast and I'm sure many others to come in the future to get the message out. It's time to participate. They're doing things in oncology in the last 10 years that has advanced the needle of survivorship so far that if we don't all participate and give ourselves to the Human Genome Project, we will be left behind. So I want to, I just want to dig into that a little bit. So in one sense, I mean, you've laid out the conditions under which you would not. Correct. Essentially participate. Correct. Under what conditions will you, because it's not like you are encouraging people to participate mm -hmm. under the right conditions. So just let's be clear yeah. about what those are. So, you deserve the right to have ownership over how your cells will be used, where they're going to be used, when they're going to be used, and you have the right to say no more. You need to have full control. If they're not, if the person asking you is not willing to allow that to happen, that's not informed consent. That is not um, true and transparent. Uh, data sharing and knowledge of how your body cells will be used and you should not participate in that. It, it, I'm telling you that that is not for you. But if they sit down and have that language in there that you have the right to refuse, that you have the right to stop participation, you have the right to revoke permission, you have the right to own what the outcomes are of the cell use, um, as you've seen over time, then yes, participate. But most importantly, if you see someone that looks like you representing that space with the authenticity of saying, I have gone where before you and I've prepared a place to make it safe, then go ahead and say yes. Because at the end of the day, it's about saving your life and the life of somebody that looks like you coming after. Right. Okay. That was awesome. Cause that's good advice for participants. It also should be the standard for anyone asking for it. Period. Correct. I mean, that's just, 
Um, you know, in my limited experience, honestly, basically from doing this podcast and podcasts with some clients talking about consent and how it works and the long list of things that have to be tracked and correct. <laughs> yes. It's the right <laughs> way to do it. Period. Thanks. Um, all right. So, um, couple more things. You've talked a little bit moving to a preventative model, which I'm always interested in. I want us to keep developing new drugs, mm -hmm. but it's hard. Nine out of 10 fail. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that <laughs> prevention, even though no one wants to pay for a disease that didn't happen, we need to figure out how to make that work. It's true. I, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, it's, so I'm from, I'm originally born and raised from Canada. Coming down to the U.S. is a completely different healthcare model. Um, universal healthcare, <laughs> no politics, okay? Universal healthcare is in every other country, even third world countries, except here. And there's a uniqueness and a historical context to this that I dare not talk about here because the whole purpose of my being here is to promote sharing information. So there is a history. It's very rich. And as we finish off Black History Month in October, for the historians, um, there's been a lot of talk about that. So I'm just going to lay that, lay that there. Um, so whew, let me stop here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot the question. <laughs> We're talking about you know, preventative models. Preventative models. Okay. So cancer... Cancer has now moved from a terminal illness, um, except for DIPG and glioblastoma and some of those really rare good diseases. Can I stop now, you one second? Because DIPG yeah. is something I don't know. So I'm assuming my audience doesn't either. Okay. So it is, oh, it is a, a very uh, aggressive disease of the pontine and, uh, and, the, and the brainstem. That is very hard to treat, and we don't know enough mechanisms and um, uh, drugs in how the side effects works, how it understands, in and what the mechanisms are that are driving the cancer growth in those areas. And so whether you're an adult or whether you're a child, um, the overall survivorship is, is very poor, unfortunately. And new drugs are being developed in this area every day. New trials are being developed in this area every day. But unfortunately, um, we're failing in that area. And it's, it's basically down to the cellular level of, is it the chicken or the egg saying, where is it coming from? What's the driver's? And how do we shut them off or turn them on? And so that's where clinical research is right now. And as they trial different drugs, different drug combinations, it, it's really um, looking at the human um, trials to move it forward to find innovative treatments. So DIPG is one of the more devastating diseases um, that are out there that is truly uh, uh, one that even with medical science today, the outcomes are really poor. But other, mo the most of them are doing well now. Before, it was a 20% chance of survival if you had cancer. We're looking at 80%. And that is just be from the early 90s to today. So we have really advanced the needle forward in survivor survivability and overall survivorship, we have a lot of more work to do. So now, instead of looking at it as an acute illness that kills, it's more, of a, it's more now moved into a chronic illness. Cancer is seen as chronic. We can give you drugs. We can give you um, remedies to help you live longer. And because we're living longer with cancer, we're starting to understand what those side effects are and how it relates to other aspects of our lives, other organs, because you're never unscathed when you have cancer treatment. And living longer means we have to deal with that, where medical science will say, we'll follow you for three to five years. 
People are living 10 years, 25 years, going through cancer two or three times. So what does survivorship mean now? It has a whole different connotation. Financially, where you started when you were first acutely diagnosed to where you are chronically is a whole different, you're in a whole different realm. And so we need to have training and understanding on that. But most importantly, the transformative part of it is it's a chronicity level, meaning you will chronically have times of illness and then you're going to be acutely ill with the diagnosis of cancer and your need to care in that acute moment to be taken care of, addressed your needs, probably having some hospitalization at some point, and then recovering from that and going back to the maintenance stage of chronic illness. So this is what the chronicity model is, what I predict and what I teach and what I practice when um, caring for cancer patients, because you need to be able to shift quickly, identify before the acute stage becomes unmanageable and then terminal. And if you can do that, you will have long-term overall survivorship. Yeah. You reminded me, I actually did an episode once. Um, I had a swimming podcast. <laughs> and there's a there's an organization called Swim Across America. It's a fundraiser yes, for yes. cancer. Um, and so I did one here in the Bay Area, and I interviewed a doctor whose specialty is really helping, and it is a lot about pediatric cancer around here, and helping giving people the information about their treatments so that down the road, doctors will yep. know how they were treated because exactly. those treatments leave a mark. Yeah. You, you get to survive, but yes. not unscathed, right? And so not, those things are relevant. Yes, it, 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 it makes a difference. One of the things that I struggled with um, in looking at the care for my daughter, it was as the doctors are sitting there telling me, okay, we're going to try this. We're going to, we're going to adjust the medications. We're going to, and we're going to add this particular one because I had that prior knowledge. The first thing I'm thinking, okay, how, what area of the body is this going to affect? And when, when am I expected to see this? Because it's not going to happen today. If, you don't, if they don't get you in the wash, they're going to get you in the rinse. And sometimes getting you in the rinse is way worse than doing it and dealing with it right now. And so I would forget the routine questions that I needed to ask, which was, okay, why are we doing this? Um, is this going to make a difference? Because I'm thinking of the long-term effect that it's going to have and most people don't think about that. And healthcare providers often don't think about tomorrow. They're only looking at today. And right. that, you, you need those blinders on to get through it. But we need to now, when we transition to a chronicity model, we need to activate those other services in oncology care, such as the cardiologist, such as the neurologist, such as the kidney doctors, nephrologists, all of the ologists, the GI doctors, that, um, to help patients transition in survivorship and monitor them going forward, even in fertility. Because when you're looking at a child and you've given all of these drugs, we're not thinking, do they want to have a child tomorrow? But they might. But they might. And if you're not asked or if you're not preparing for that, you've taken that decision and that ability right off the table, right off the bat. And this same goes in um, young adults or teenagers going into the young adult experience and they have cancer. We need to give them those options. We need to talk about it. You will survive. You might survive. What does survivorship look like? What are the goals that you might want to do? Let's have a talk about it and prepare for that. So if it means that we need to harvest some eggs or harvest some sperm to prepare you to have a family of the future, then we need to do that before you start all that treatment. 
So that's an honest-to-God conversation that we need to have. And it's hard to think about that when you just think, want to think about, I want to save your life. Stay alive, yeah. Just stay right. alive, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, last question, if you still have some time. <laughs> I do. And that was a perfect transition. So let's talk about caregivers. Okay. There's a big load. I mean, it's a hard job, right? I mean, oh yeah, oh yeah, caregivers, Hands cops, <laughs> firefighters, they're just looking yeah. at bad stuff all day long, right? Right. I'm sure there are moments of yes. joy as well. What do we need to do to help them? Wow. So usually it's the caregiver that gets the brunt of it, right? You get the brunt of the bad news knowing that your loved one is ill, but then you get the brunt of all the bad behavior that your loved one going through cancer or whatever that chronic illness is because you're a safe place. You're a safe space. You can, they can say whatever they want and they know that it's unconditional love and unconditional um, care. But you, loving to a fault is also harmful. It adds stress because you don't want to say how you feel because you don't want to hurt feelings. But also, if you don't have a place to share ideas or say what your pain points are in a manner and way that can be heard, then it doesn't move the needle forward and you stay in that stressful state. So for me, I can't stay where it's complain, complain, complain. That doesn't work for me. I'm a solutions-oriented and driven person. And so um, we create support groups that only meet monthly. Or we go to the doctor and have those quarterly visits or monthly visits or even weekly visits when it's necessary. Um, And that's not sustainable. Uh, doctor's times are very important. And so when we look at who are the ones that are providing that care, who do we go to? Who do we normally talk to when we have a pain point? It's the nurse. It's the nurse that takes the brunt of that. And so I think that we need more nurses, um, not just at the bedside, but leading these support groups. Because when you need to increase the support, they can be there. They have more of that flexibility to be available as you need it. And and support groups and caregivers need a, just like a chronicity model, the same way that the, the um, patient needs. We can advance it acutely when they're in crisis and they're trying to figure it out, such as looking, you know, their care, their um, patient's, uh, uh, they didn't get their authorization to get the drug. So that means that's going to be a delay. That's stressful. That person has to deal with that. Um, and not having that support or that person to help them navigate. It, these are the things. Uh, they also need to understand what how um, isolation will affect them. Because if their loved one is isolating, they must isolate too. And the loneliness of being within cancer care uh, tears marriages apart. It tears people apart mentally, um, not just the patient. And so we need more support in in those regards. There's some wonderful groups out there, and one by Jason um, Crawley, and he has um, Hope Kits. And it's a it's a wonderful little kit that comes to the door, has a bit of cookie, a couple of cookies, some nice warm slippers. It has a journal to talk in, but it also has cue cards that's, that helps engage other people and how to speak to you as you're going through your cancer. So it's a wonderful product to have as you're waiting to see the psychiatrist because you should, <laughs> you should. <laughs> it's important to mental health. I wanted to slide that one in. <laughs> But um, those are some things there. There are so many resources out there and groups that can help you deal with um, dealing with payment. That is not just a one and done and we're going to pay $1,000 towards your $5,000 mortgage and you got to go figure it out. No, they're there to support you. Cancer, it doesn't happen one day and it's gone tomorrow. Sometimes the treatment takes two years, three years. In my daughter's case, nine years. 
And um, I'm of means. I had seven-figure bills that put me in the closet rocking in a corner because I didn't make that kind of money. And so there are groups out there that will help you with that, that will pay and take the stress off of dealing with the everyday financial um, things that you need to do just to live so that you can focus on your family member. Um, and it's not a one and done. And they're there. So people need to know about those things. I think if you take the stress of financial toxicity off, you can manage the stress of living with cancer much better. Yes, that would be awesome. Rochelle Prosser, thank you so much. I will obviously uh, connect you with your LinkedIn profile in the show notes for this episode and a link to Orchid Healthcare Solutions. But thank you so much for a, a really thoughtful and eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much. And if I could leave just one statistic as to why we all need to participate in the human genome. My goal is to improve the overall survivorship of cancer by 50%, not in 20 years, not in 30 years, in 10. And the only way to do that is to change this specific statistic. African-Americans are 20% of the population of the United States, but yet we are only offered clinical trials 6% of the time. And then only 1% of us make it in to be enrolled to receive that groundbreaking um, access to care and treatment. If we don't change that, if we don't provide health equity in the oncology space, we're not going to survive. And so it is a paramount for us to participate in clinical trials. Hold your nose, pray to God, you know, chant a mantra to whomever that you serve, but say yes, please. Your life might depend on it. Nice. Yes. Thank you for including that. Thank you. Thank you for All the right. opportunity. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs>